I want you to think just for a minute about something that we just sang over and over again. And we not only sang that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave, we sang that throughout all eternity, that is going to be part of the refrain. That's going to be part of the song. That's going to be part of the main thing that we are taking in through all eternity. There's gravity to that because what we're saying is that we don't simply believe that the resurrection happened. We believe that the resurrection of Jesus is central to the entire history of humanity, to the entire history of what God is doing. We celebrate the resurrection obviously on Easter, but we're celebrating this as the central event in human history. And yet for most of us, even those of us who are Christians, we'd probably say, I don't know that I normally think of it that way. Like normally what we're thinking about is our problems and the things facing us on a daily basis. We're not normally thinking of events that happened a couple thousand years ago. And if the resurrection of Jesus did happen, it happened a couple thousand years ago. And those aren't things that we're normally thinking about. For example, I want you just to imagine that tomorrow incontrovertible evidence comes out that Julius Caesar never lived that he never existed, it was all made up. And so all those military victories that he had, those didn't really happen. And his ascension to power in Rome, that didn't happen. The assassination that Shakespeare wrote for us about, none of that ever happened. We just find out it never took place. Julius Caesar never existed. And I want you to take in just for a moment how absolutely rocked your world would be by that news. (laughs) Now, some of you are laughing because you're getting it. They're saying, not that rocked. I mean, it'd be confusing and I'd have some questions and I would be surprised for sure, but it wouldn't really change that much about my life. I I would still probably have the job that I have and I would still have the same basic beliefs that I have and I'd still have my family and I would still probably do things pretty much the same whether or not Julius Caesar ever lived. My life wouldn't be that rocked. So then the question is, why should our lives be that rocked by whether or not the resurrection of Jesus happened? Because it happened about the same amount of time ago. And most of us think, well, we didn't come in here necessarily thinking that the central issue in our lives is whether or not the resurrection happened. For most of us, we have other things that are pressing on our hearts. Some of you probably came in here and you have health issues that are either nagging at you. And so you're looking at your life and saying, I'm not sure my life is going to be the same because of this thing that I'm dealing with or because this thing that my spouse or my child or my friend is dealing with. Or maybe some of you, it's even more severe and what you're dealing with health-wise is making you stare down at death. And that's the thing on your mind. And for some of you, it might be money or it might be jobs that you either just feel stuck where you are or you feel really anxious about what's going to happen with money. And some of you are anxious about other things. You're looking at, you're in high school and you're looking ahead to college and you're thinking, gosh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do and I'm not sure how that's going to work out and I'm stressed about that. And maybe for some of you, you're looking at broken relationships or you're looking at brokenness in your marriage and you're saying, ah, we're struggling. Or some of you might say, we're not even struggling anymore. We're not even trying anymore. And some of you are on the verge of grief over lost relationships or lost loved ones. And for some of us, it's just hard to look at all of that and say, well, all right, I'm, I'm going to set all that aside and try to think about the importance of Jesus' resurrection. And what I want to just say right now is God is not asking you to set all of that aside. 
If there's one thing we see from the life of Jesus when we read about him in the Gospels is he was deeply concerned. His heart was deeply moved by the people who are hurting and who are broken. And so whatever burdens you're bringing in here this morning, God sees those burdens. God loves you and God deeply desires to relieve those burdens. But what we're going to see claimed in the passage that we go through is that the way that those burdens are relieved is not by focusing in on them. The way that those burdens are relieved is instead by looking at the ultimate crossroads that we all face. Because you may be thinking the health problem or the money problem or the relationship problem or the bad habit that you need to break before it ruins your life. You may think that that is the greatest crossroads in your life. But the passage that we're going to go through is going to claim something else. The passage that we're going to go through is going to claim that the truth of the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate crossroads of every life. And if you have a Bible, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Eventually, things will be up on the screen. And for whoever, whoever's up there, my remote isn't working right now. So if you could get that going, that'll help us. Um, and you also have a bulletin insert that you can follow along in there. But in this passage that we're going to walk through, we're going to have two hypotheticals put forth to us. The first hypothetical is going to be, what would the world be like if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? And then the second hypothetical is going to be, what would the world be like if Jesus was raised from the dead? And you can see the first one's already up here. So the first one starts in verse 12. What if Jesus wasn't raised? And before reading verses 12 and 13, let me just give you a little bit of context for this book. So the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. And if you know a little bit about the Apostle Paul, he's a really important person in the history of Christianity. He wrote about half of the books in the New Testament, and he was central in going around and starting churches. But also, the Apostle Paul has a really powerful story because at the beginning, he was not a believer. In fact, at the beginning, he was opposed to the entire Christian movement so much that he was imprisoning people who were putting their faith in Jesus. And then something happened to Paul. He reached the ultimate crossroads in his life, and that's that he was confronted by the risen Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the crossroads for every life, including Paul's life, and his life was totally turned upside down. And so as he begins this letter to the Corinthians, what he's addressing is that he and others had come through and they'd proclaimed Jesus' resurrection but now a movement had started within the church where certain people were saying, you know what, maybe death is just the end. Maybe there's nothing after death. Or if there is something after death, we're certainly not going to embrace this weird Christian belief that our bodies will be brought out of the graves, either for final judgment or for eternal life. We're certainly not going to believe that. And Paul confronts that belief, starting in verse 12, by saying, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He says, we went around telling you that this event happened, that Jesus was raised from the dead. If there's no such thing as a resurrection, then that resurrection didn't happen. And then in verse 14, he makes kind of an overarching statement for the rest of the passage. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 
In other words, this is not a peripheral issue to the Christian faith. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, the whole message we're proclaiming is useless, and you believing in that message is useless. And he backs that up by telling us at least three problems that would come if there was no resurrection. And the first, in verses 15 and 16, is simply just an integrity problem. He says, more than that, we are found to be false witnesses of God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. So there's this thing that we do sometimes on Easter. Some of you know it. I I did it earlier. So I'll do the first part. And if you want, if you believe in Jesus, you can do the second part. He is risen. All right, all of you are now on the hook. And here's what I mean. All of you just made a factual statement about something that God did. And notice even the terminology that Paul is using here. He's not simply saying Jesus got up out of a grave. He's saying God raised Jesus out of the grave. Paul says, if there was no resurrection, then I've been going around telling people that God did something that God didn't do. In other words, I'm in a lot of trouble. I don't think God's going to take kindly to me going around and telling a bunch of people that he did something that he didn't actually do. Paul says, we're false witnesses. We're frauds. This entire thing that we've been proclaiming is false. Which is weird because some of us might be tempted to look at it and say, well, it's not all false, Paul. I mean, even if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, you should still love one another. That's still good. You should still follow the golden rule to, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You should still forgive and be generous. Like all those things are still true. All those things are still good, even if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. So how could could Paul now say that the whole thing is undercut? And here's why he could say that. Paul's making it clear that the Christian message is not primarily about following God morally. Now, just for the sake of clarity, If you follow Jesus, he will radically transform how you approach moral decisions. What Paul is saying is we don't look at Jesus primarily as a teacher, even though he's the greatest teacher. We don't look at him and say, well, here's what Jesus did. He came to show us how to love one another and he came to show us how to live a good life. Jesus did show us those things, but the primary way that we approach Jesus is as a savior. And if he wasn't raised from the dead, he's not a savior. So Paul doesn't say, well, at least we have the moral teachings. Paul says, we've got nothing. This whole thing is empty and we are false witnesses about God if this event didn't happen. We have an integrity problem with our message. And the second thing that he says is, if this message isn't true, we have a spiritual problem. In verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And here's another opportunity for us to reframe. Paul is saying, you know, the primary problem that we have as human beings is not simply that we have sickness, and it's not simply that we have bad habits, and it's not that we have low self-esteem, and it's not that we have these different kind of dysfunctions in our life. Those are problems, but that's not your main problem. Your main problem is that you have sin. Your main problem is that you have rebelled against God. That you've said, all right, God, you're calling me to go this way. I have a better idea. I'm going to go ahead and be the Lord of my own life. 
You have sin against God. That is your primary problem. And that sin has estranged you from God and you need to be reconciled to God. That's at the center of the gospel. That's the center of what Jesus came to do. And Paul says, you know what? No resurrection, no reconciliation. No resurrection, no forgiveness. If Jesus wasn't raised, he's just another guy who died. If Jesus was raised, that says something about the sacrifice that he made. But if Jesus wasn't raised, you're still in your sins. You still have that same problem and you stand condemned before God. We have an integrity problem. And we also have a spiritual problem if Jesus wasn't raised. And then thirdly, in verse 18, he says, we also have an eternal problem. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And this is a euphemism. When he talks about those who have fallen asleep in Christ, he's talking about Christians who have died. He says, you know what? All those Christians who died hoping for the resurrection, hoping for final eternal life and put on their gravestones, one day I will rise. And all of us were saying, we'll see them again. Saying, yeah, none of that's true. None of that's true without the resurrection. The resurrection threw open the gates to eternal life. No resurrection. Death is just it. And so all that hope that you had, all that optimism about getting to see those loved ones again, all that optimism about the idea that death wouldn't be the final step for you, all of that is gone without the resurrection of Jesus. So no wonder in verse 19, he makes the audacious statement to say, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says, there's a lot of people to feel sorry for in the world. You know who you should feel sorry for the most? You should feel the most sorry for Christians if it turns out that the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. And we have to pause here and admit, maybe we're not totally tracking with this with Paul. Because there's a part of us that would want to say, well, that obviously would be bad if tomorrow I got incontrovertible evidence that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. I'm not going to say that wouldn't affect my life. That would. Probably wouldn't come to church nearly as much as I do right now. If I found out that was true, probably wouldn't read the Bible nearly as much as I do. So yeah, it would change things. But, but in the end, what, what have I really lost? I mean, I, I, I've done some good things and I probably have a better marriage because of looking to follow Jesus and, and do the things that he said. I may have a little bit more inner peace. So, all right, so maybe it was a lie, but still it, it probably worked out okay for me. What have I really lost? What I want to say is if that is your response, you are not in tune with the kind of life that Paul is talking about that's involved with following Jesus. Paul is all in. The idea that any of us would go to Paul and say, you know what, maybe following Jesus was still worth it even if all of this wasn't true. Paul would say, are you kidding me? Paul was a Jew rising up through the ranks. He was an important guy in the Jewish community. And when he became a believer in Jesus, he was basically kicked out of his own ethnicity. He spent his life being chased, insulted, persecuted, thrown in prison, shipwrecked, beaten. Paul lived a very difficult life. If you looked at it just from the outside, you wouldn't say that Paul's life got better by becoming a Christian. His life got much harder and he spent his time and his energy and his affections on people that continually scorned him. And then he spent all his affection looking to trust Jesus, even through really difficult times. Paul lived his life in a way that it was an utter waste. If one day God wasn't going to raise his body up from the grave and reward him for everything that he did. 
So let me just ask, for those of you who are Christians, we need to ask a very haunting question for ourselves. And that question is, if Jesus wasn't raised, what do you stand to lose? Do you have people in your life, people who don't believe in Jesus, don't believe he was raised from the dead, and do you have people in your life that look at you and say, I feel bad for her. I feel bad for her. I pity them. Because you know what? So generous with their money and giving their money to all kinds of things and all kinds of causes that are associated with Jesus. That's all empty. That's not going anywhere. That's not doing anything. That's not going to bring any reward. What a waste. I feel sorry for them. And I feel sorry for them because they continue to look to have peace and to forgive people that wrong them when really they should just kick them out of their life, when really they should just take revenge or tell them what they really think about them. They continue to show kindness and forgiveness. What a waste. I feel sorry for them. And what a waste. I feel sorry for them because they continually fight against sin and they continually look to live good, righteous lives and they continually spend their hearts and their affections drawing near to a Jesus that I don't believe is even really there, is even really listening. I feel bad for them because you know what? When it turns out that this is all just a house of cards, they'll be defrauded. What do you stand to lose if this turns out not to be true? And if your answer is, "Eh, not that much, You're not in tune with what it means to be all in with Jesus. Paul says, of all the people to feel sorry for, if this turns out not to be true, you should most of all feel sorry for us because we've given everything to bet on Jesus. Paul says, I'm going to do a hypothetical What if Jesus wasn't raised? And the answer is that if Jesus wasn't raised, there are devastating effects. But Paul is not finished. Paul has a second hypothetical that he wants to explore. And he says, all right, we've explored the hypothetical of what life would be like if Jesus wasn't raised. Let's explore the hypothetical of what if Jesus was raised. And he starts that in verse 20. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. So, all right, confession time for me. You might have already seen it. This is not a hypothetical for Paul. He's not saying, let's explore a hypothetical, what if Jesus is raised? He just announces it. He just says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. We explored the devastating consequences if this wasn't true, but I'm going to tell you right now, it's true. It happened. He's making a factual statement. And in fact, earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, there are witnesses There are people who saw Jesus on that cross and then days later saw him walking around with them, saw him eating fish, saw him teaching, talking to them. They saw the holes in his hands. They saw the wound in his side. They saw him. There are witnesses that this actually happened. And so I'm here to tell you there are devastating consequences if Jesus wasn't raised, but good news, he was raised. And then he says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We already talked about those who have fallen asleep. So he's talking about Christians who have died. And he says, Jesus is the first fruits. And this is a farming analogy. And what he's saying is in in farming, you would plant all your seeds and you'd sow them and you'd water them and you'd prepare them. And then finally, the first of the harvest comes, just the very beginning of it. And when the first fruit of the harvest comes, you're excited, not just because you have that fruit, But you're excited because when the first fruit comes, what that means is more to come. Paul says, 
Christ has indeed been risen from the dead and more to come. He has conquered death and he has opened up the gates to eternal life. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, more to come. And then he gets into some of the spiritual components of this in verses 21 and 22. He says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And the big point that he's making here, he's saying, all right, as the human race, we've had two representatives. We've had two people go forth and represent the entire human race. It started with Adam. He went forward as our first father, as our first representative, and he failed and he rebelled against God. And when he did, he brought down the whole human race with him and death entered into the world for all of us. And I'll just pause here for a minute because as Americans, we don't really like that idea. We're very individualistic. So we're like, I don't like that. The Adam, that somebody else did something that's going to affect me. I don't want to die for Adam's sin. I don't want that idea to happen. I want to die for my own sin. <laughs> all right. You could do that. First of all, we, we don't get to decide how God does things. So your opinion on this doesn't really matter a whole lot. But I'll just say this, if you're offended by this and if you're thinking, I don't think that's fair, I don't think I should have to die because of Adam's sin, you have not done better. You have not been more successful. And if God just gave you your wish and said, all right, I'm not going to even count Adam's sin against you at all, I'm just going to count your own sin against yourself, you would still have the same problem. But for those of us who are upset that Adam would be our representative, we get confronted with the idea that the only way we get out of this mess is that we had a second representative. We had somebody else come. And where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam was disobedient, Jesus was obedient. And where Adam brought us death, Jesus brings us eternal life. We are brought to new life. We were brought into death because of our first representative and his failure. We are brought into life because we ride Jesus' coattails to life. We get eternal life not because we turned our lives around. We get eternal lives because God sent his son into our mess and we trust completely in him. We don't get eternal life because we did good works. We get eternal life because Jesus did good works. We get into the family because in Christ, all are made alive. Even that last sentence, you might think, all, all are made alive. So does this mean that if Jesus is risen, it's just all taken care of? Everybody's just going to heaven? Everybody's going to be raised from the dead? Well, Paul clarifies this in verse 23. Verse 23, he says, but each in turn, Christ, again, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. He clarifies what the all means as far as all of those who will experience the resurrection and the new life. He says, those who belong to him and not everyone belongs to him. And so let's make sure we know what this means. Let's just ask the question, what does it mean to belong to him? At least for starters, what it means to belong to Jesus is it means that we have recognized him for who he is. It means that we have recognized him as the Lord. 
we've recognized him as the one who God has crowned with glory, that through the resurrection, God told us exactly who he believes Jesus to be, that Jesus is the once and future king. It means we recognize him as the Lord. Frankly, not just even as my Lord, as the Lord. Not simply as my savior, as the savior of the world. It doesn't mean that we make him something that he's not. It means we recognize the reality of what God has done. We recognize him as Lord and Savior. And when we recognize him as Lord and Savior, part of belonging to him also means that we look at the path that we used to be walking and we say, well, I'm turning away from that. That was the path that I was walking when I was trying to be my own Lord, when I was trying to be my own Savior, when I was trying to make my life make sense on my terms. That's where I was going. So I'm turning from that. A lot of the biblical authors call that repentance. I'm turning away from that and I'm turning to cling to Jesus. I'm following Jesus. I'm going to be radically changed by Jesus because I believe that he is the Lord. And most central to all this, to belong to Jesus, means that we are brought into the family of God. It means we are adopted into his family. It means that when we pray, we don't pray to God and say, God, you should listen to me because I've done some pretty good stuff. I got promoted by my boss. I've saved a lot of money. I've lived a good, clean, healthy life. You should listen to me. It means when we pray to God, we say, God, the only reason why you should listen to me is because I'm with Jesus. And I know you're going to listen to him. I know he was the completely obedient son. I know he did everything that you asked of him. I'm with him. And the only reason I think that I could have any hope of heaven, the only reason I think that I could ever be forgiven, the only reason that I think I could call upon you and you would listen is because I'm with him and I am riding his coattails to new life. When we belong to Jesus, we're brought into fellowship. We're brought into family with the God of the universe. This is why the resurrection of Jesus truly is the ultimate crossroads for every life. And I want you just to go back for a moment because again, some of you might be thinking like, all right, that's good, but I've still got these things I'm dealing with. I've still got these burdens that are wearing me down. And here's my invitation to you. My invitation to you is not to say, who cares about those burdens? Just focus on the resurrection. My invitation to you is to reframe how you look at those and to realize that those burdens that you're carrying are really symptoms. They're symptoms of the biggest problem that you have. And the biggest problem that you have in in many ways is that your life is perilous because it can be uprooted and it can be changed and you are living on ground that can be shaken by lots of things that are out of your control. You can suddenly have a best friend abandon you. You can suddenly have a spouse decide to leave you. Your health could suddenly go down the tubes. You could suddenly get fired. The economy could suddenly go into the tank. War could suddenly break out. We live lives that are utterly uncertain. And so sometimes we think, no, no, no. If I just got the money, I'd be on solid ground. I'd be unshakable. If we just figured out things in our marriage, I'd be unshakable. If I just figured out which college, I'd be unshakable. No, you wouldn't. Those things are symptoms. But what would it be like to live life and be utterly unshakable? What would it be like to live life and say, I don't want things to go south, but if they do, I'm not going to be shaken. Even if people that I dearly love die and I grieve their death and I miss them deeply, I'm not going to be shaken. 
Even if my boss fires me, I'm not going to be shaken. Even if there's major problems in my relationships, I'm not going to be shaken. Even if I'm still in the battle with different habits that I'm trying to break, I'm not going to be shaken because my confidence is not in myself. My confidence is in the fact that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for my sins and that the God of the universe raised him from the dead and that the gates of eternal life have been thrown wide open. Nothing can shake me, not even death. What would it be like to live an unshakable life? All those burdens that we carry, they're just symptoms. And God gives us the ultimate invitation to life and hope now. God hasn't just called us to a new morality. He hasn't just called us to try to clean things up and get new habits. He has invited us into his own family through what Jesus has done. And, you know, for those of us that are part of a church family, one of the great privileges that we have, one of the great joys that we get to experience is we get to experience the reality that God wasn't simply transforming lives and bringing new hope in the days of the Bible. It wasn't just thousands of years ago. It's not just in the things that we read about in the Bible that God did miraculous transformation. He is doing it every day today. He's doing it in our midst. We get to experience it with one another when we hear the stories of how he brings new hope and how he brings new life and how he brings us the joy of forgiveness of sins. We get to see how God is at work in our midst every day. And what we're going to get to experience now is through a video, we're going to get to experience some stories about how God has brought new life and transformation into the lives of some people who are a part of this church family. So as we watch this and when we take this in, we get to be reminded that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same God who loves to bring new life and transformation every day. I would always just look for what satisfied me then and there, whether it be going to the coolest party or drinking the hardest alcohol or doing drugs with my friends or trying to find a girlfriend that I could hook up with or just giving in. Rock bottom for me was not caring if I died and shooting up stuff that would kill me. That was rock bottom. I didn't care. I did crazy stuff because I didn't care and I had no hope. My life has, I was unhappy. Let's start there. I was unhappy with um, my position, what I was doing in, in my job. I was stressed out. I, I was moving through the motions, but I wasn't fulfilled. <laughs> okay. I took acid, stole my mom's car, and went driving around and found a whole bunch of people down in a parking lot. And it was a Baptist church, and some guy came up to me and prayed the sinner's prayer. And when I woke up the next morning, I had a peace and joy in me that I've never experienced before. It blew me away. You know, through my long commute, I started listening to the Bible on on podcast. I started, uh, you know, following a lot of Christian stations and kind of listening to that. That's when all of the things started coming together. I, when I stopped fighting uh, everything and started really allowing God to 
work in me. Um, man, it's just it's overwhelming how happy uh, I became. I decided to go on a week-long mission trip in Nicaragua. And at the time, I was not a Christian. I was agnostic or atheist, whatever term you like to use. I took a chance. I prayed to God and I said, this is me putting myself out there, God. I want to know if you're real. If you are real, take this week to show me. And he took that prayer and he did amazing things. together and sing of our living hope. Thank you, Jesus. And how great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. And in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is ready. 
heart is full and um, the emotion and the passion is there it's yeah I'm not empty I was exploring every avenue I could think of to have fun to do crazy things and find some kind of meaning for life and I never found it before I found Jesus Every day, I try to remind myself of how grateful I am of what he's done in my life and how he's changed me. And all the things that I have now are because of what Christ did on the cross all those years ago. to go ahead and sit down and we're just we before we go we want to take in the gravity of this we've celebrated but we want to talk about what it means for us to live in light of this so I've got an encouragement to those of you who are Christians and I've also got an invitation to anyone here who's not a Christian and so I want to start with those of us who are believers in Jesus our calling is to live lives that only makes sense if one day the risen Jesus is going to get us up out of our graves and reward us. My invitation to you is to look at your life and if at the end of the day you'd say, gosh, I'm not sure what I stand to lose if this isn't true. 
I want to invite you to spend some time drawing near to God and asking Him to open your eyes to the radical steps of faith He's calling you to. And maybe it does have something to do with your money and your possessions and some radical shifts in your generosity. Maybe it has to do with the idea that you've just kind of shrugged your shoulders to the battle with sin and said, ah, what's the big deal? And he's calling you to radically look to experience the closeness with him that comes when we get into the fight against sin. Maybe it has to do with reaching out in his love to other people where it would be foolish and you can make yourself look bad, but it's the kind of thing that is worthwhile if we have a risen savior. Don't stay in stagnation. Live in light of the idea that Jesus is risen and is coming again. And my invitation to those of you who are here who aren't Christians is real simple. The invitation in the Bible is to receive him, to receive Jesus. And once again, the idea here isn't to receive a new morality, although Jesus will transform your morality. The invitation isn't here, just start coming to church and start doing better things. You will not do that well enough. The invitation is to embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, to embrace him as the one who reconciles you to God, to bow the knee, to turn away from whatever path that you're on right now and to cling to Jesus by faith. To say any faith that you had in yourself that you were gonna get yourself to a meaningful life or that you're gonna get yourself to heaven after you die, that you abandon all that hope and you place your hope only in Jesus. And receiving Jesus doesn't come through a ritual that we practice. It really just comes through a reorientation. Jesus said that there's nobody that comes to him that he turns away. So I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad you think your sin is and that you think it's so bad that it can't be forgiven. You are wrong. The grace of Jesus Christ covers everything. So don't let any doubt, don't let any hindrance, any distraction keep you from using this as the day that you give your life to Jesus, that you recognize him as Lord. And the invitation that I want to give to you is that in a moment, I'm going to pray. And after I'm done praying, we're going to have some people that are over to to each side of the stage. And they're going to be ready there to receive anybody who wants to have just a five minute conversation about what it means to give your life to Jesus. And even as I say that, some of you are thinking, we've got Easter plans. All right, here's the deal. I know you've got Easter plans. We are talking about eternity here. Your Easter plans can wait five minutes. People will wait for you. I promise you, if you say, you know, I got to go talk to somebody because I want to be reconciled to God. They're not going to say, no, we got to go. They're going to let you have that five minutes. Don't let, here's the reason why I say this. Don't let any distraction, don't let any doubt, don't let any lie right now keep you from embracing Jesus and experiencing the new hope and the new life that he came to bring. What I want to do now is I want to invite you all to stand and I'm going to pray for us before we're dismissed. So will you pray together with me? Father, thank you so much that Jesus is risen from the dead. Thank you for the new hope that you bring. Thank you that so many of us can testify of how our lives are new and our lives are different and our hope is unshakable because of what you've done. Father, I pray that you lead us into radical steps of faith. And Father, I pray for my friends here who who today is the day for them to put their faith in you. 
Father, please remove any hindrance that would get in the way and even get in the way of them experiencing a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ who will help them experience the joy of the new life that you bring. Father, we pray for the work of your spirit in us and amongst us. We pray that we would be signs of the final resurrection in the kinds of lives that we live in light of what you have done. And we pray this in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.